Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast and our July 4th special presentation. I wanted to share some real Americana with you on this very special holiday, so I picked out five very uniquely American stories which we originally ran at 1001 Stories for the Road. Stories which will remind you of what we love about our country, its authors, its band directors, its sports heroes, and its entertainers. We'll end it with some well-known military theme songs to represent our Marine Corps, our Air Force, our Army, and our Navy. All our stories are family-friendly and perfect for an hour's worth of entertainment on the back deck or in your car radio as you travel this week. God bless you, and God bless America. Hi everyone, this is John Hagedorn, and welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road, also known as Caffeine for the Curious, and your home for good old-fashioned entertainment. We're going to take you back to April 24th, 1907 for this story, because this was the day that the song Anchors Away, The March and Two-Step by Charles A. Zimmerman received its copyright. Very few pieces of music serve any organization quite as proudly as the melody Anchors Away does for the United States Navy and Naval Academy. The song sparks an intense feeling among many Americans whenever it's heard, recalls our nation's pride, and serves as a reminder to all have served our country on land and sea. Charles A. Zimmerman was born into the U.S. Naval Academy, it could be said, through his father, Charles Z. Zimmerman starting with his birth in 1861 in Newport, Rhode Island, where his father was a Naval Academy bandsman during the Academy's temporary Civil War relocation to Newport, done so because Maryland, although officially aligned with the Union, was considered too dangerous a location in what was a divided state then in terms of loyalties. When he reached adulthood, Charles attended the Peabody Conservatory of Music in Baltimore, and upon graduating in 1882, became a member of the U.S. Navy Band as a third coronetist. Five years later, he relieved Peter Schaff as bandmaster, making Charles Jr., now at age 26, the youngest ever to assume leadership of the Naval Academy Band. When Grover Cleveland became president in 1893, Zimmerman had the honor of attaining national recognition by conducting an orchestra of 120 musicians for the inaugural ball. Four years later, when John Philip Sousa asked him to consider becoming the director of the Marine Band, Charles declined, wanting to continue composing and guest conducting, minus the pressures that directing the U.S. Marine Band under the highly popular and heavily demanded Sousa would present. And he stayed busy composing, writing a new march every year and dedicating it to each graduating class. In 1905, a midshipman named Alfred H. Miles, class of 1907, approached Zimmerman with his class's request for a new march, asking for a march with a swing to it that could be used as a football marching song, and one that would live forever. A tall order, to be sure, but Navy had lost every game to Army since 1900, and something had to be done, so Zimmerman set to work. The class supper was held in October of 1905, and it was tradition that this was the time that the class march was played. 
Although it didn't make the history books, it was very likely that it was played, minus the lyrics, which Miles, no slouch himself in terms of music, was working on. The first mention of the performance of Anchors Away was at the 1906 Farewell Ball, held on February 12th of that year. The song received its first public performance at Franklin Field at Philadelphia for the 1906 Army-Navy football game. And for the first time in five years, Navy came out of it a winner. The crowd had been handed the lyrics that Midshipman Miles had written, and 30,000 voices rang out over the music the band was playing that day. And the band probably sounded something like this. Zimmerman's new song was a huge hit, and for years has stood as the unofficial theme song for the Navy. We say unofficial, since the Navy still hasn't weighed anchor on the decision to make it their official theme song, basically because the lyrics can't change quickly enough to adapt to America's ever-changing high-tech Navy. Be that as it may, the original song and old lyrics are still heard at every Navy football game, and no Armed Forces medley would be right without Anchors Away included. Here's the first couple of verses to Anchors Away with the lyrics. Charles Zimmerman continued his famed career as Naval Band Director 
proudly wearing the nickname Zimmy until Sunday morning, January 16, 1916. He died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage. He was given a full military funeral with midshipmen serving as pallbearers and classes were suspended so that the entire regiment could attend. I don't have to tell you what they played in his honor. As for midshipman Miles, who penned the original lyrics, he went on to have a distinguished career as a surface warfare officer, holding a number of posts and commands, which included executive officer at the Naval Subbase in Norfolk, Virginia, commanding officer of the Naval Station at Guantanamo Bay, and first commanding officer of the Little Creek Amphib Base, again in Norfolk, retiring at the rank of captain. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. 1001 Stories for the Road was inspired by our big brother, 1001 Heroes, the research for which has turned up a treasure chest of great stories. Too short for our typical 45-minute shows at 1001 Heroes. And these stories, averaging about 15 to 20 minutes each, needed a new home. So we created 1001 Stories for the Road. You can catch all our 1001 Network shows and archives, including this one, at www.1001storiespodcast.com. We'll be back real soon. Return with 1001's July 4th special right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Hi everyone, this is John Hagedorn, and welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road, also known as Caffeine for the Curious, and your home for good old-fashioned entertainment. The advertisement for the Paris Ritz Hemingway Bar reads like this. Cole Porter would spend up to nine hours a day in the Hemingway Bar. He's said to have composed 
begin the begin here. F. Scott Fitzgerald had his favorite seat. Ernest Hemingway and Gary Cooper made it the epicenter of their life in Paris and would sit and talk for hours. The legend has long since been written, but here it comes back to life every night. Head barman Colin Peter Field's incredible creations are a reference for cocktail lovers the world over. And while guests flock to this warm, intimate alcove to see what he's shaking up, they also return again and again for the heady, arty spirit that still lingers in this magical place. The night begins and ends at the Ritz Paris. The storied hotel on Paris's Place Vendôme was closed for four years for a $350 million renovation. But when it reopened just last year, all the old memories came with it, along with the $1,500 per night room rate. But like Hemingway once said, the only reason not to stay at the Ritz is if you can't afford it. Blunt, but true, like most of his writing. There are a lot of stories out there about Hemingway and his exploits, but this one takes the cake. As the story goes, his wife, who was also a journalist, and just as competitive as Hemingway was, had taken an assignment for Collier's magazine in 1944 to cover the Allied invasion of Normandy, and Hemingway somehow camped on it, managing to ride in on D-Day, while his wife, Martha Gellhorn, drew a ticket on a tender loaded with explosives. Knowing who they had aboard, the commander of Hemingway's craft delayed his arrival until the beaches were under Allied control. The initial assault, as everyone knows, was brutal, and for that first day, no one was sure of the outcome. After day one, they were still only 50% sure. Once he was on land, Hemingway was of course given strict orders to follow all the rules that correspondents had to live by, those being not to carry a gun, to stay with the group he was assigned to, and to follow orders from anyone who outranked him. Determined to fight his way all the way to Paris for the express purpose of liberating the Ritz Bar, which held years of memories for him, Papa Hemingway used his bluster and personal powers of persuasion to surround himself with a volunteer cadre of independent warriors, including a colonel in the OSS, two military historians, two seasoned resistance fighters, and a dozen or so Maquisson guerrilla fighters, men who had escaped the Vichy government and fled to the hills to fight Nazis. Then he loaded a motorcycle and sidecar with whiskey and weapons and headed toward Paris. But it wasn't exactly a free ride, as the small but well-armed band of brothers would discover, and they had to encounter resistance in and around a few smaller villages along the way, one being St. Poix, near which a shell exploded ten yards from the motorcycle, threatening to end their journey and, worse, ruin their liquor stash. When they reached the next town in one piece, Hemingway himself cleared one cellar of stubborn Germans with a hand grenade, probably to liberate the champagne. When word finally made it up the grapevine to Patton that Papa was playing soldier and interfering with his troop movements, there was hell to pay. One morning the renegade band was awakened to find their camp had been encircled by a corps of military police with Patton present to provide the chewing out. So Patton said, if any of you bastards make a move toward Paris before our troops do, I'll court-martial each and every one of you. That took some of the wind out of Hemingway's sails, enough that he wasn't the first into the city, and not the first journalist either. He had liberated a few wine cellars. One man counted 65 bottles of champagne in Hemingway's Jeep by the time they reached the Seine. Meanwhile, at the Paris Ritz, 
the only hotel in Paris that the Germans had kept open during the occupation. Things were in high gear. Half of the hotel was reserved for high-level Nazis, like Hitler's second-in-command, morphine-addicted cross-dresser Hermann Goering, who lived in the Grand Suite, while the other half was open for sympathetic celebrities, socialites, and citizens of neutral countries. To keep themselves busy, Hemingway's band went on night raids and pushed on during the day, where, one comrade reported, he didn't talk about anything else but to be the first to the Ritz. He also said, When I dream of afterlife in heaven, the action always takes place at the Ritz. One of the men with the bunch later said that the men around Hemingway were starting to take on his personality, speaking in clipped sentences, and taking on his habits and mannerisms. And why not? At age 45, Hemingway was already an award-winning novelist and journalist, and a worldwide celebrity. His novels, like For Whom the Bell Tolls and A Farewell to Arms, had been made into movies. His hard-drinking flamboyant style and his adventurous life was already the stuff of legend. These men, no doubt, felt lucky to be in his company. As the Allies moved closer, with Leclerc and Patton and Montgomery all grumbling for the right to be first to cross the finish line under the Arc de Triomphe, Hemingway, now attached to the French 2nd Armored Division, was itching to enter Paris too. When they got close, Hemingway managed, using his name and with the help of the American Army, to wrangle a meeting with French commander General Philippe Leclerc. His request? to be given enough men to go and liberate the Ritz's bar. To the writer's surprise, he got a frosty reception and was curtly dismissed. It was expected that General Leclerc, in command of the Allied troops with regard to the entry of Paris, would be first on the scene, marching up the Avenue de la Grande Armée with a full regalia of tanks, artillery, flags, and bands. But well before Leclerc could get there, a jeep came careening up the avenue, zipped under the Arc de Triomphe, down the Champs-Élysées, and across the Place de la Concorde, then skidded to a stop in the Place Vendôme at the entrance of the Ritz. Hemingway, gun slung in the crook of his arm, was in command of that jeep. He had taken charge of the motley group in the vehicle, the same bunch who had fought with him all the way from the beaches. Hemingway, as we already know, called them his irregulars. He led them into the Ritz, proclaimed its liberation, took command of the bar, and ordered champagne for everyone. Soon the renowned combat photographer Robert Capa, later killed in Indochina, came driving up to the Ritz, thinking he was miles ahead of anyone else. But he was amazed to find that Hemingway had beaten him to it. Archie Pelkey, Hemingway's driver, was standing guard at the entrance. Hello, Kappa, Pelkey said. Papa took hotel. Plenty good stuff in cellar. Go on in. According to his brother Lester Hemingway, Hemingway searched the cellar with his men, taking two prisoners and finding an excellent stock of brandy. They also rang up a bar tab of 51 dry gin martinis. He wore the uniform and gave orders with such authority that many thought he was a general, the Ritz's head barman Colin Field remembered. And so, in August of 1944, a legend was saved, not by Hemingway, but by the Allies' rugged determination to defy and exterminate the Nazi threat. What Hemingway saved was a storehouse of memories, which he had helped to build. When broke and struggling, he had enjoyed the company of F. Scott Fitzgerald in that bar and enlisted the services of bartender Bertine 
to create a cure for the hangover, which Bertine did by creating the Bloody Mary. It was the home to George Bernard Shaw and Madame Ritz of kings and queens of the Barrymores, of Valentino, of Coco Chanel, of Proust, of Noah Coward, of Cole Porter and Gershwin, and so many more. So many memories, and all of them worth fighting for. Hi everyone, this is John Hagedorn, and welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road, also known as Caffeine for the Curious, and your home for good old-fashioned entertainment. As a kid, I loved baseball. I still do. We lived in Arcadia, California, close enough to Santa Anita Racetrack to hear the sound of the bugler playing the first call, which signaled the riders to get ready for the post parade. We moved before Walter O'Malley and the Brooklyn Dodgers left New York for Los Angeles but Dad had worked with them to line up the GE lighting for the new stadium at Chavez Ravine, which took years to pull together, and I never had a chance to see the Dodgers play at the Coliseum before we moved. When we moved to Illinois, and later Philadelphia, the Dodgers remained my favorite team, and on my 15th birthday, Dad asked me if I would like to see the Phillies play the Dodgers at Connie Mack Stadium in Philadelphia. It was my first major league ball game, and I can still remember looking down at the manicured green field hearing the hum of the crowd and the chatter of the peanut and popcorn vendors hawking their goods, and the excitement at seeing the players come out on the field to warm up. Dad had chosen that day because my favorite pitcher, Sandy Koufax, was pitching, and he knew that would make the day special for me. We had arrived early enough to catch the warm-ups and look at the scorecard. Knowing how to keep a scorecard was a part of my upbringing, as much as learning how to tie a fly for trout fishing. Hall of Famer and former Phillies player Richie Ashburn was announcing the game. Richie was loved in Philadelphia. As a hitter, he was expert at fouling off pitches to stay alive at the plate until he could get a good pitch. He was a left-handed hitter, and his foul shots were usually hard-line drives toward the box seats near the third baseline. One day, his foul shot hit a spectator named Alice Roth square in the face, breaking her nose. It created quite a stir. As the medics came, loaded her on a stretcher, and began to carry her out, Ashburn, a lifetime 308 hitter with a 380 on-base percentage, was still at the plate and fouled off another identical shot, which, incredibly enough, hit Alice Roth on the stretcher while they were carrying her away from her seat. Mrs. Roth, wife of the editor of the Philadelphia Bulletin, loved the Phillies, but watched all future games from a seat high up in the bleachers. That's one reason we Americans love baseball so much. It's the stories. Richie Allison was no longer in the lineup, but diehard Phillies fans might remember Johnny Callison, Cookie Rojas, Richie Allen, Tony Taylor, and Ruben Amaro. Old Dodger fans might recall Willie Davis, Maury Wills, Jim Gilliam, and Frank Howard. They were all playing that day. 
This day with Dad turned out to be a day I would never forget, and I'll get back to it in a minute. Fast forward from here to May 1st, 1991. This was the day that Nolan Ryan pitched his seventh career no-hitter, going one better on a record that will probably stand forever in baseball. To appreciate how difficult it is in Major League Baseball to throw a no-hitter, in the tens of thousands of Major League Baseball games recorded since 1876, only 275 no-hitters have been pitched. To achieve this feat, as many of you fans know, the same pitcher has to complete nine full innings in which the opposing team has no hits. Nolan Ryan's lifetime seven no-hitters still stands as a major league record, and he threw his last one that day, May 1, 1991. He was pitching for the Texas Rangers on Fan Appreciation Day at Arlington Stadium in front of a crowd of 33,000. Ryan had turned 44 that year and was pitching on four days rest with a stiff back, sore bones, and a bloody right middle finger, the result of his skin and scar tissue breaking open while warming up in the bullpen. It was a downer of a day physically, Ryan had told a reporter. A no-hitter was the furthest thing from my mind when I came to the ballpark. It was a rough day on Ryan, but a great day in baseball. Just a few hours earlier, Ricky Henderson had stolen his 939th base, breaking Lou Brock's previous record. He had one of his worst warm-ups ever in the bullpen, manager Bobby Valentine had said. Pitching coach Tom House told me his back was stiff. Every bone was killing him. He feels like he's getting old. Don't leave him out there too long. Valentine asked Ryan before the game if the back was a problem and was told it was a little stiff. He asked his pitcher how it would be once the game started. He told me it would be history, Valentine said. Little did he know what he meant by history. The home crowd was going crazy in the night as Ryan retired Lee and Devin White on ground balls to second baseman Julio Franco. That brought up Roberto Alomar, son of former California Angels second baseman Sandy Alomar, once a teammate of Ryan's. Ryan got ahead in the count with two fastballs, but Alomar, whose first major league hit was off Ryan, fouled off two pitches and took two pitches for balls before whiffing at one final fastball. Once again, Ryan had rewritten history. He had thrown his sixth no-hitter just last year at age 43. Only one pitcher would even come close to his record of seven no-hit games, and that was, you guessed it, Sandy Koufax with five. And I can remember when he threw his third. Yep, I was there to see it against the Phillies at Connie Mack Stadium, and the Phillies fans who know their baseball gave Koufax a five-minute standing ovation that day. And we'll leave you real fans with this question. Who is the better pitcher, Ryan or Koufax? A sports writer named Don Schlossberg once asked catcher Jeff Torberg, backup catcher for both the Dodgers and the Angels, and a catcher who held the unique distinction of catching no-hitters for both Ryan and Koufax. Here's some baseball trivia for you. His answer... You're talking about two of the greatest pitchers of all time. It's awfully tough to compare them. Nolan threw right-handed, and Sandy threw left. Kopax threw a four-seam fastball and a straight-down curveball, and Ryan threw a softer curveball and a great changeup, in addition to a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. 
Torberg was to go on to manage and then become a broadcaster, using his earned knowledge of the game to propel a great career on both sides of the sport. Nolan just muscled the ball in his early years. You could hear him grunt all over the ballpark. Very often he would throw a pitch with two strikes where he would choke the ball so tightly that we called it a dry spitter. If somebody would look at the rotation of the ball in this day and age, it would be called a split finger. But his was a fastball. All of a sudden, the bottom fell out of it. As a catcher, it almost knocked the glove out of my hand. On paper, Koufax, who had to retire at age 30 with severe arthritis in his pitching arm, won 165 games, three Cy Young Awards, had the lowest ERA in the league for each of the last five seasons, and ended his career with a 6.55 winning average over a total of 12 seasons. Ryan, who pitched 27 seasons to the age of 44, had a 5.26 winning percentage, didn't win any Cy Youngs, but did win two ERA titles and had more strikeouts and no-hitters than any other pitcher. So we'll leave the question of who was the best up to you. One thing is for sure, however. May 1st, 1991, the day Nolan Ryan secured his place in baseball history with his seventh no-hitter, was a great day for baseball. Hi everyone, it's John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. Today's story is about two guys whose love for the blues brought them together on stage, on TV, and then in the movies. You might know them as Jake and Elwood, or Dan and John, but most people just call them the Blues Brothers. We're going to take you back to April 22nd, 1978 in the Saturday Night Live studio high up in New York City's NBC building when Paul Schaefer's time came to announce a new blues and soul band for their music segment. The band launched into a frenzied tempo and two performers dressed in black suits with thin black ties, black fedora hats, and Ray-Ban dark sunglasses rushed out amidst loud audience applause, grabbed the microphones, and introduced themselves as the Blues Brothers, Joliet Jake E. Blues, and Elwood J. Blues, already known to SNL fans as John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. And with Aykroyd making the introductions and Belushi whipping up the already electrified studio audience by cartwheeling, clapping, and singing, they launched into a gutsy version of Hey Bartender, which brought the house down, along with millions of TV viewers who knew they were seeing history in the making. Fans of the show who had been with SNL at their start in 1976 might have recalled Aykroyd and Belushi singing I'm a King Bee, performing as Howard Shore and his all-bee band, wearing bee suits and featuring Dan Aykroyd on harmonica 
and Belushi on vocals, belting out the blues in a style very much reminiscent of Sam and Dave in 1967 when they performed hits like Gimme Some Lovin' and Soul Man, a Steve Winwood song that Sam Moore is still performing well at last check. And this was no last-minute skit from the back room at SNL. Behind Elwood and Jake was a top-notch stage band led by Paul Schaefer, who had spent the last two years working with Dan and John to put this whole act together, incorporating the incredible talents of saxophonist Lou Marini and Tom Malone, a former Blood, Sweat, and Tears member, guitarist Steve Cropper, and bassist Donald Duck Dunn, both of whom had provided the sound for Booker T and the MGs, as well as almost everything that had come out of Memphis's Stax Records during the 1960s. Belushi and Aykroyd had been performing already for years. Blues was the glue that had brought them together, and blues was the glue that kept them going. They had met, as the story goes, in a dark and dingy club called the 505, owned by young Dan Aykroyd in Toronto in November of 1973. Aykroyd, having finished a day of work performing with Second City, Chicago's famed comedy troupe, which had a second location in Toronto, was in the bar at 2 a.m. one morning when a stocky figure rushed in wearing a leather jacket, a white scarf, and a five-point driver's cap of the sort that old cabbies used to wear. The two had met earlier that evening at Second City, and Aykroyd had issued the invite to stop by at the bar. Belushi had been working in New York at the National Lampoon Radio Hour, but was in Toronto scouting talent. The conversation trended to the blues on the jukebox, which was belting out Chicago and Memphis blues. Belushi was a hard rock fan, but he liked this. He asked what group it was. Aykroyd answered, it was a local group, the Downchild Blues Band. Belushi answers, blues, huh? I don't listen to much blues. And there was a brief silence. Then Aykroyd answered, John, you're from Chicago. From that day forward, they were good friends, like brothers. It wasn't long before they would become the Blues Brothers. Fast forward to 1976 in New York and Saturday Night Live. Aykroyd owned another bar, the Holland Tunnel Blues Bar, which he had rented not long after joining the cast, and it was common for SNL cast members and weekly hosts to attend the bar after the shows. The jukebox was filled with old Sam and Dave songs, as well as records from the punk band The Vile Tones so they had something for everybody. Belushi had brought an amplifier and kept instruments on hand for anybody who wanted to play, and it was here that Dan and John carved out their future as the Blues Brothers, and here that Belushi started writing the movie he knew would come. They were singing with local blues bands, perfecting the sound and the stage act. They soon took on a look. The Hats and the Reban Wayfarers, said Aykroyd, were inspired by John Lee Hooker. They also borrowed some of their stage presence from the previously mentioned Down Child Blues Band, which Aykroyd, Canadian by birth, had been familiar with in Ottawa, seeing them at the Hibbo Coffee House there, along with other acts that ranged from Muddy Waters to James Cotton and Otis Spann. Belushi, who was a rock fan, was still making the conversion to blues in Eugene, Oregon, during the hiatus between SNL seasons 2 and 3, while he was filming Animal House. And it was there that he met Curtis Selgado, the front man for Roomful of Blues, and a big name on the Northwest Pacific blues scene. Belushi would visit his act at the Eugene Hotel, and he added this act to what he had already learned, putting the final touch on Joliet Jake Blues. The SNL show led to an album, Briefcase Full of Blues, in 1978, and then the movie, The Blues Brothers, 
directed by John Landis, in 1980. To promote the film, John and Dan, along with John Goodman, performed at halftime at Super Bowl XXXI, along with ZZ Top and James Brown. The performance was preceded by a stadium news announcement that the Blues Brothers had escaped custody and were on their way to the Louisiana Superdome. The 1980 film, featuring epic car chases with the Bluesmobile and musical performances by legendary Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, and John Lee Hooker, to name a few, grossed $57 million, making it the 10th highest grossing movie of 1980. And it all started on that Saturday Night Live stage in New York City back on April 22, 1978. Hi everyone, this is John Hagedorn, and welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road, also known as Caffeine for the Curious, and your home for good old-fashioned entertainment. We're going to take you back to those halcyon days of yesteryear, May 3rd, 1966. It was a business day like any other at the Reynolds Geyer Agency of Design in St. Paul, as Rain Geyer experimented with a concept for a local back-to-school promotional display for Johnson brand shoe polish. He was looking at a colored polka dot paper mat onto which he wanted to place shoes and wondering how that would look when suddenly he saw people in those shoes playing a game where the people acted as game pieces. He quickly crafted a 4x6 mat lined with rows of red, green, blue, and yellow circles and then started testing out game versions with fellow artists and designers in the shop. With one version, he placed four employees positioned with feet occupying the circles, and Rain called out a color, whereupon each of them began to twist and contort to move a foot to an available space of that color. Howls of laughter came from the watchers and the participants as the players contorted themselves to reach open colors, and at that point, Rain knew he had a winner, but what to call it? He decided on the name King's Footsie, but it wasn't chess, and the name wasn't a seller. He pitched it to 3M, but they passed. It was time to call in the big guns. He hired game designers Charles Foley and Neil Rabins to work with him to further develop the game, and together they came up with eight different concepts. But it always came back to the version where people had to twist themselves like pretzels to remain on the mat. Then Rabins came up with the idea to have the players put their hands on the circles in addition to their feet. That worked. It placed people in provocative positions, to say the least, but it resulted in peals of laughter. Then Foley suggested repositioning the circles to make sure people would become entangled. And that worked as well. They applied for a patent and called it Pretzel, for obvious reasons and Foley and Rabins were listed as the inventors. Although from the beginning, it was understood that Geyer had developed the concept originally, and Foley and Rabins had improved upon it. They pitched it to the giant of games, Milton Bradley, and they took it, changing the name to Twister, which didn't really appeal to Geyer, as Twister had stormy connotations. But the people at Milton Bradley had other concerns to worry about besides the name, 
mostly over the raucous reputation the game had for placing women in revealing positions, to put it mildly. And Milton Bradley had a stellar reputation for G-rated family games. Mel Taft, the guy at the top, loved the game and wanted to go ahead with it, despite the warnings that the game was too provocative for the current culture and that the game wouldn't sell. He released it to the stores in late 1965, and it was an instant disappointment, despite a strong TV campaign and the efforts of a PR firm to promote it. When the Sears catalog, which was a huge get for any game that was going to flourish on the market, turned it down, things were looking pretty bleak. As legend has it, in the spring of 1966, Milton Bradley had just put through a cancel order for Twister and was preparing to take it out of the stores, not knowing that the PR firm they had hired had scored a major engagement with The Tonight Show on NBC, scheduled for May 3rd. In 1966, three broadcast networks ruled television, ABC, CBS, and NBC. The only other viewing had to be done with a UHF antenna, which might pick up PBS and some local broadcasters if you lived anywhere near the signal. Cable TV and Internet had not yet been invented. The audience for these networks was huge. They wished they still had it today. And Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show was known everywhere by everyone. Johnny had worked his way up in television after his World War II Navy service on the USS Pennsylvania had ended up in 1945 and had used his considerable on-screen talent and quick wit on television, first as a game show host in Nebraska, and then in Los Angeles, where he guest hosted the Red Skelton Hour, which brought him an offer from NBC to take the helm of The Tonight Show from the retiring Jack Parr in 1962. To say Carson was loved by viewers is almost an understatement. With his Midwestern openness, and his hilarious monologues, which poked fun at politicians and celebrities, his show became an overnight success. His guests ranged from Boy Scouts to celebrities, and often resulted in antics that became talk over the water cooler at work the next day. Like the time frequent guest Joan Embry brought a marmoset from the San Diego Zoo, which promptly climbed on Carson's head and urinated, causing the live audience to roar with laughter. Carson quipped, I'm just glad you didn't bring a baby elephant. Another frequent guest of Carson's was Hungarian-born Eva Gabor, best described as a glamorous actress and socialite, and remembered best for her role on the 60s show Green Acres, which cast her as a socialite-turned-farm wife, the perfect slot for her, with Eddie Albert playing her attorney husband, Oliver Wendell Douglas. Eva was quick, funny, and charming, and a true pro when it came to improvisational wit. So the Tonight Show's producer proposed that she might be the right match for Johnny to introduce the game Twister to the viewing public. On May 3, 1966, Johnny handed the game spinner to his trusty sidekick, Ed McMahon, and sunk down to the stage, along with Ava, who was wearing a white evening dress with a V front. As both, on hands and knees, played the game of Twister, accompanied by howls of laughter from the audience as they quipped with every move. The show was a huge hit, as judged not only by Nielsen, but by the lines of people in the game stores the next day. FAO Schwartz in New York was besieged with customers. Large and small retailers all over the country were swamped with orders. Milton Bradley soon followed up with promotional spots on Art Linkletter's House Party and The Mike Douglas Show, and Milton Bradley teamed up with Seagram's Seven Crown to distribute a book of drink recipes with a Twister theme, 
But it was teenagers, not adults, that became the largest consumer of the game, as Twister became popular with high schoolers at basement parties and college students at, well, wherever they could find room for a 4x6 mat with colored polka dots on it. By December, Milton Bradley's factories were turning out 40,000 game boxes a day. It was so popular that they had to scrap an ad campaign for New Year's to allow production to catch up. By the end of 1967, three million Twister games had been sold, and Twister had become one of the 60's most popular games. Now produced by Hasbro, Twister was enshrined in the National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York in 2015, along with Super Soaker. And it's still doing well today, all thanks to Johnny and Ava, who saved it.
Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. Always proud of our country. God bless you, and God bless America.